You know, as I'm thinking how I, I would expect many of us are feeling right now, the, the word unsettled comes to mind. I, I suspect that for many of us, that would be a descriptor of your feelings. We're living through a time of just this historic series of events. It is not a time of national or international unity. We're living through widespread disunity, and it's amplified by technology, unlike any other time in human civilization. And what I think is a a much greater challenge for many of us is that we have experienced some level of tangible disunity even even in our own church, even in our own family, even in our own congregation over the last few weeks. And that, that has been really tough. I can tell you guys, I can, I can say this really confidently. This, this is one of the things that I can say confidently, that as pastors and elders of this church, that we so badly desire to follow Jesus Christ, to follow his lead, to submit to him, um, to love him, and by his grace, we will do just that. We don't, we don't follow the world. We, we do not follow the world. To follow Christ means to listen to all kinds of reasonable criticism and to understand that some will be legitimate and a needed call to repentance. There will also be criticism that is unjust or that's based on misunderstanding or that, that ultimately is a veiled critique of our biblical worldview. And values, and in these cases, love and grace has, has got to abound. It must abound, but also fidelity to the truth and to Christ's call in our lives. I, I can tell you as elders, we've been praying for several years now that God would give us wisdom for how we as, as children of God ought to live out our calling in a city, in a world that is functionally segregated and I would say an increasing fashion in a, a city that is functionally segregated. And I can share with you numerous ways that God is, is answering those prayers, none greater than the ministry of safe families. People in this church have made tremendous sacrifices and, and are making a, a real difference in this city, coming alongside families, predominantly under-resourced black families that are in desperate need, reaching out for help. You're gonna be hearing more about Safe Families. I mean, we've talked about it a million times, but you're gonna hear so much more about it in the coming weeks and months and, and, and how you could get in, engaged in this unbelievable ministry opportunity if God would lead you in that direction. More recently though, you've heard Chris talk about, uh, it, share that we've been praying for the Lord to lead us uh, together with a predominantly black congregation uh, with, with whom we can partner for the sake of the gospel and for, for unity, greater unity in the church. Through Phil Kraus, who is a bad Christian because he's not here tonight. Uh, I'm going to take it out on his brother. Um, it, it, Phil has a friendship, uh, a, a longtime friendship with a pastor of a small, predominantly black congregation, New Wine Worship. And I, I think we're seeing the Lord answer this prayer through that friendship and that, that relationship. Uh, not sure how this like partnership's going to go, how long it's going to go. Truly, we're, we're just taking it day by day. But uh, for you guys to know, New Wine Worship, they were in need of a space just like ours, like the space we're not using right now for the summer. And we've had the opportunity to open up our building to them. They just used it this afternoon for the first time, and they're going to be using it throughout the summer. 
Their pastor, uh, Hollis Calhoun, he's gonna be joining our next leadership community to facilitate a conversation with Phil. I, I'm really excited for that time, and I think leaders, you guys are gonna benefit from that, and I think the whole church will benefit greatly from that. I, I wanted to take a moment to start out tonight and just pray for, uh, for New Wine Worship, pray for their pastor, Hollis, pray for this partnership, and uh, thank God for it, and just pray that God would, would bless them and he'd, that he'd lead us moving forward. So we, would you pray with me to that end? Lord, we, uh, we, just, we do thank you for what you're doing in our lives and in our church, God. And um, Lord, we thank you that you are not this deistic, um, uninvolved, uncaring God, Lord, but, but you lead us by your spirit. You've given us your very spirit to live within us, Lord. And no matter, no matter how turbulent things get, God, you, you promise to lead us, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to submit to your calling, Pray that you'd help us to humbly follow you, Lord. We pray for new wine worship, God, that you would bless them, that you would grow them deeper and grow them by number. Lord, um, pray that you'd bless them, bless them meeting in our space. I pray that it would be just a tremendous blessing to them this summer, God, and they would see the spirit move in ways they have never seen before, God. Uh, Lord, and we we do pray that you would lead us to, to be um, Lord, walking just more fully in the, in the picture of unity you have for the church. Show us what that looks like, God. Help us to not follow the wisdom of the world, Lord, but to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we trust you to do that, God, uh, and to show, us, to show us the way. Lord, we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, guys. When I reflect on the last three years of, of my own life in ways that the Holy Spirit has graciously worked just personally in my own heart, there are just a number of key, key moments, things that I, I believe I'll remember for years to come. I think realizations that have come through his word from the Holy Spirit. And those, those moments over the last few years kind of taken as a whole, I would say provide a sort of background information for this series that we're getting into tonight. And I'm really excited about um, t- f- tonight, for the sake of time so that we can get into the heart of the message, I'm just going to share a couple of these moments, but I'm going to share more in the uh, subsequent, subsequent weeks. And I, I think as you understand more the motivation for this series, I, I think that you'll appreciate it uh, more so and, and perhaps get more, to really take more from it, from the Lord. Um, so there's two things tonight, I believe, uh, which God has, has opened, opened me up to, opened our church up to throughout the last few years that are uh, a sort of background information. Okay, number one, the first thing. And if you've been around for uh, more than a couple years, you, I pray to God you know this. If not, then you have not been listening very well. Because this, this has been a consistent theme over the last few years. If you're newer, you, you might not be totally up to speed on this. Um, there, there is a tremendous need for the church to understand and emphasize Christ's return. Accompanied by the resurrection of the dead, the destruction of the world as we know it, the recreation of a new heaven and earth, judgment for all who are outside of the faith, and salvation and eternal life for those who are in Christ. All of these coming together, Jesus bringing them as one piece. This is all over the New Testament, all over the New Testament and and the Old Testament. It's not quite as clear, but it's all over the Old Testament as well, especially if you read the Minor Prophets. It was crucial for the early church to understand the day of the Lord that was coming. And it's crucial for us to understand what's coming. 
and what may be coming soon. Okay, this is the first thing that's kind of background information to the series that I think is really important for us to understand, and it's a key motivation. Uh, number two, number two, and this might be a little newer for, for some of you. I, I think that the Lord has, in my own personal life, helped, helped me to, to notice and understand the falsehood of Christian dominionism, uh, more specifically kingdom now theology, and, and also showing me my own emotional acceptance of this doctrine, which you might be familiar, you, you, might, you might not be. Kingdom now theology, I mean, there's all kinds of components to it, and, and some of which are wonderful, and some of which are not. In a nutshell, though, it claims that, that uh, followers of Christ will come to dominate cultural institutions, and that the culture and the world will be more and more Christianized. And essentially, we as the church will usher in the second coming of Christ the, and the, the full kingdom promises and the, the fullness of the kingdom of God through the ever-expanding influence of the church. Now, I, I, I want this to happen. I mean, this sounds wonderful and beautiful and phenomenal. And it, it does get to a certain point in so many ways of what we ought to be striving for. But like many teachings that are, that, that, that can be damaging, it's just not, it's just not quite right. Um, we so desperately want to influence the culture. We so desperately want uh, the world to experience justice, love, prosperity. But I believe that the kingdom now theology that sees the church ushering in the second coming of Christ fails to understand Matthew 24 and the expectation that Jesus demands that we have as his disciples. Let me read, if you wouldn't mind turning with me, Matthew 24, 9 through 14. Matthew 24, 9 through 14. This is the Olivet Discourse. And it is an awesome passage, paramount to Christian understanding that is at the same time very confusing because Jesus is talking about all sorts of things and some of those things he's talking about are soon to pass and did, and did come to pass in AD 70. And there's all kinds of perspectives on that. I certainly believe that these verses are talking about, primarily talking about something that has not yet happened, that, that the church will see happen at a future date. So starting in verse nine, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive people, deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come, which is Christ's return. And again, the destruction of this world as we know it, the recreation of a new heavens and earth, judgment and salvation, and the fulfillment of the kingdom promises. The church will not fail. And we've got to know this. The church will absolutely not fail. The church will be ever growing in its expansion to all people groups, as we see in Matthew 24. The, the gospel will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. 
Uh, also, you see that all uh, tribes and tongues will be represented worshiping before the throne of God when Christ returns. So we do see this kind of expansion, and, and that should be our expectation, and that is what's happening. That is our reality. We are getting close to there being a gospel presence and a, a legitimate representation of the church in every single people group in the world. The church is doing this work and has been doing this work for quite, quite some time. And we've had the privilege to be a part of that in, in various ways as a church, and I hope an ever-growing part of that. But, but, false teaching, cultural opposition, and unbiblical living will absolutely increase in the lead up to Christ's return. This is what Jesus says. This is the expectation that uh, New Testament Christians ought to have. And we have got to embrace it if we're not to lose heart. We've got to embrace, I, I know it sounds so unpleasant. It sounds so unpleasant, but we've got to embrace it and believe it if we're not to lose heart. We must embrace that the church's apparent failure to reach the world will precede Christ's return. When he comes back, when Jesus comes back, we're not going to see him and say, yes, we did it. We did it. We finished the work. Jesus is coming back. We Christianized the culture. Now Jesus is with us. I don't believe for one moment that that will be our, uh, that those will be our words or our emotion when we see Christ. I believe we should have the expectation that we will marvel at him and his grace and his mercy and his power to turn apparent failure into victory as he does time after time after time. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of Christ's own life and ministry turning apparent failure into victory and beauty. And I think we've seen him do that in our own lives so many times. For, my own, for, for much of my own life following Christ, I, I really have seen nothing but growth in gospel preaching churches. This is why I, I've never believed in kingdom now theology per se. I've never believed in it. I've always thought it was, it was off. But experientially, this is what I've seen in the church. I, 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 okay, yes, you've got the world over here and it does seem to be getting worse in a lot of ways. But man, look at, look at all these church plants. Look at all these, this numeric growth in, uh, in, in Bible churches, gospel preaching churches. Yes, you're seeing the mainline denominations uh, that uh, believe all kinds of wacky things. Um, you're seeing them suffer, but not, not us, not us. We're growing. And, and I've had that expectation that, that will continue to happen. And I do hope that it will continue to happen. And we ought to pray in faith and hope for, for, for real revival in our culture and for God to save, to save our nation from destruction uh, and to use the gospel to that end. We ought to pray for that in hope and faith. Sadly though, uh, the trends have changed and the ground that was never quite soft, it just, it feels so hard right now. It feels so hard and it, it grieves me, it grieves me, but we must continue to be faithful to God. We must continue in the context of hard ground, to be faithful to God, to be faithful to one another, and to be faithful to the things to which he has called us. 
to not neglect our calling or the good works that he has prepared in advance for you to do on that moment when you confessed Christ for the first time. Okay, this leads us to this anchor passage for the series, which is 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. So if you, if you would turn with me there or look it up on your phone or whatever, um, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, this is, this is the passage for the series. Uh, tonight, I'm gonna read the first nine verses just to give us a little bit more of a picture, but we're gonna focus on verses one through five throughout the series. And we'll just keep coming back to this over and over and over again. Okay, you guys ready? Second Timothy, one through five, one through, one through nine right now. All right, but mark this. Okay, take special notice of this. Pay attention to this. Remember this. Do not forget this. Are Paul's words from prison and suffering to Timothy. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over gullible women, who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so also these teachers oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Okay, so the first five verses there, that is our anchor passage for the series. And, um, you know, first off, maybe I should tell you the the title of the series, if you didn't already guess it. You probably did guess this, though. Um, the title of the series is Good Times, Everything is Awesome. Um, I, part one tonight. And I expect that you, you got that from that passage. Um, so let me take a little sip of water here. For quite some time, I think many of us have, and, and maybe you haven't put your finger on this, maybe you have, maybe this will strike something with you, have been increasingly feeling the religion of our culture. The world has been, and it will always be the world. This is just, this is just the way it is. This is, this is why we, you know, we're called to be in the world, to love those in the world, but to be separate, to not be of the world. But every society needs some kind of religious system and ideals. Uh, even if the average citizen fails to, to, to live up to those ideals, which is, which is typical in any culture, in any, in any country. For us, the dominant cultural religion is no longer nominal Christianity. It, it's never been like full out Bible believing. Uh, we love Jesus with all our hearts. That, that has not been, as far as I know, ever the dominant culture in our country. But we are coming from a place where nominal Christianity, or at least some adherence to Christian values, has been somewhat dominant 
in, in a number of ways. But this is no longer the case. And, 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 and I feel it. I think you feel it. Uh, we, we ought to notice it. We ought to feel it. I, I like the framing of our cultural religion uh, as moralistic therapeutic deism, or uh, MTD for short, moralistic therapeutic deism. Basically, God does exist. Most people have some kind of belief in God, some kind of belief in the afterlife. Um, but, but he exists at the end of the day, primarily to serve me and meet my needs. He does engage in my life. This is different than the traditional definition of deism where God kind of set things in motion and is completely unengaged from creation. Or he does engage with us in this worldview and religion of our culture. At least that's, that's my contention. But he engages in our way, on our terms, in the things we want him and we say yes to him engaging in for our sakes. And I, I trust that you guys have seen and noticed the growing values of our cultural religion predicted and encapsulated so beautifully in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Okay, let me, this is just lock, stock, and barrel with moralistic, therapeutic deism, which is not a phrase that I coined, by the way. Um, Let me remind you of, of these values that believers should expect to be present in ever increasing ways, even in, even in places where there are professing Christians, even in those places. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll dissect the passage more in future weeks and I'll, I'll give my take on why I'm, I'm saying this is not just the culture, but even within the church. People will be lovers of themselves Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having a form of godliness but denying its power. I cannot think of one of these values that is not growing in our culture right now, all around us. And in tempting us as followers of Christ, tempting us in so many ways. Like every theological framework, there's something that's at the root here. Like for us, for the church, the very root of what we believe. And this, this should be at the root of the way we live our lives, the way we think about reality, our worldview, the way we think about relationships, the way we interpret the news. All of those things, the very root of that as followers of Christ is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true story of of Jesus' identity as God and Lord and his death on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins and his resurrection from the dead. This should be at the very root of our worldview. For moralistic therapeutic deism or MTD, I would contend that the very root of this is love of self. Love of self. Self Self-love. This concept of self-love is at the root of our cultural religion. Self-love is absolutely everywhere, guys. 
I mean, I, if, you're, if your head has not been buried in the sand, like you've heard that phrase so many times over the last few years. This past year, sweet, sweet litter, sweet little Hermione Granger, sweet little Hermione, she got some attention. I, I trust you know who that is. Um, by identifying as being in a romantic relationship with herself. The phrase is self-coupling. Um, that is, that is a, uh, something that's happening nowadays. Uh, Lizzo in her song Soulmate says, I'm my own soul, soulmate. I'm my own soul, soulmate. I know how to love me. This has become a mantra for our time. Not necessarily that particular song, but the sentiment behind it. It's in, it's in like every kid's show. I mean, it is all over the place. It's in every movie. It's in so many of the, the books we read and the articles that we read and even the conversations that people have. Sologamy is an actual thing. Sologamy. Do you know what that is? To marry yourself. That, that is an actual thing right now. And I'm not saying that's widespread, um, but this doctrine and practice of self-love is not a niche idea. It is not, this is not some niche thing that's only for the radicals. It is a religious doctrine that has completely overwhelmed and overtaken so much of our culture, so much of our culture. So what is self-love? And if you have not made the connection yet, 2 Timothy verses one through five, the very first thing that we should expect to see happen in an ever increasing way preceding Christ's return is that people will be lovers of themselves. That's what we're talking about here. Self-love full scale embraces outward criticism. In our context as followers of Christ, self-love embraces criticism of the church criticism of the scriptures and criticism of God himself as just part of this journey, kind of always learning, but never arriving at truth, as you see, just part of the journey. It embraces those things, but self-love theology does not give an individual freedom to accept genuine criticism of themselves. Because at, at its core, Self-love theology believes that people are basically good. Okay, guys, this is something I, I, I hear people say all the time, Christians say all the time, people are basically good. This is not what we believe. This is not what Bible Christians believe or really any sort of Christian. You, you can't be a Christian and believe that people are basically good. It goes against the very nature of the gospel itself and most definitely the scriptures. So people are basically good, but a true self-love disciple takes this one step further and applies the doctrine unequally to themselves. So this is the practical theology of self-love that I, I, I've seen in so many ways. And I'm certainly tempted to, to this end myself as well. The practical theology of self-love says, I am basically good. I am basically good. I know that for sure. Therefore, if I fail... If I sin, it must be the result of someone else's failure or a structural failure. My, my school, my company, my government, my parents, but it ultimately cannot 
I cannot accept that it is, that it is me, that it is me. The most ardent self-love devotees see even the most gentle criticism, the most gentle criticism of their beliefs or their practices as a literal, I'm not kidding, as a literal act of physical violence. These are the most devoted of the self-love disciples. And this is an ideology that is spreading like gangrene. That criticism, at least in certain places and at certain times, is a literal act of physical violence. When oneself is the highest good, any criticism is akin to heresy and blasphemy. If I am God, how dare you speak against me? How dare you criticize me? How dare you pick apart my beliefs and compare them to some other standard? If I am indeed the highest good, it cannot be tolerated. And it certainly cannot be received as constructive. It is not an accident. In my view, it is not an accident that this religious precept of self-love, of love thyself, there's the command, love thyself, has a direct correlation with an unprecedented percentage of the population suffering with anxiety, depression, mental illness, and just straight up unhappiness. Just straight up being, just being very, very unhappy. Uh, the number of people that are unhappy right now, it, it is unprecedented in our history. Think of the difficult things we've been through in the history of our nation. The, the anxiety and depression and unhappiness right now has, has no rival in the past. Self-love is not the answer to anxiety. Self-love is not the answer to destructive personal behaviors. There are strong voices in our culture that want you to deny the reality of your own historic sinfulness and just straight up embrace a lie. Embrace and live a lie that you are absolutely perfect the way you are. Goodness comes from within. Love and light comes from within. You merely need to block out the negative voices and the haters. This is the message that we hear so often and it is self-deception rather than empowerment. I'm not saying there aren't any haters out there. We've all got haters, but the, the strong voice of our culture is self-deception rather than empowerment. At least that's my contention through this series. And I hate to say this, it grieves me so much to say this, but even in the church, even in the church, this self-love theology is present. It's present in significant ways. Some have taken, and I've heard pastors do this just recently even, very recently, taken Jesus' words in Matthew 22, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself as an affirmation of self-love doctrine. I've heard it said you can't love others until you love yourself. You can't forgive others until you forgive yourself. So this is where you must start. Focus on loving and forgiving yourself. Guys, I, if you've heard this before, and I suspect that many of you have, this is absurd, unbiblical nonsense that completely misses the point of Jesus' words in Matthew 22. I mean, it desecrates the point of what Jesus is saying in Matthew, 2, Matthew 22. Jesus is assuming that every individual, 
even everyone who sins against their own body, that, that everyone loves themselves. He assumes this as, as a reality for every single person. There's no imperative to love yourself. We don't need one. It just comes very naturally to us. We do it all on our own. Our parents don't need to tell us to do it. We just do it. We might do it very badly. We might do it in the wrong ways. We might do it in destructive ways, but we most certainly do it. The idea of forgiving ourselves, this assumes a power that we do not possess. We have no power or authority to forgive ourselves. And I can certainly speak for myself uh, and say that this, this self-love ideology, it was baked into my worldview throughout my childhood and adolescence. Everything in my life that went wrong, which was the vast, vast majority of things. Um, everything, it, it was someone else's fault. Every criticism was met with defensiveness. And I, I stayed in that place of defensiveness. I, I couldn't move on from it. Yet I was so quick to condemn others to be filled with moral outrage at anyone but myself. The bottom line is that I lived to serve myself as king. And through that, I was absolutely miserable, completely given to loneliness, without a friend, and dominated by fear. And by no means am I saying that I'm not susceptible to this now, or of that, that I've not given way to it over the years since I've come to Christ. But there was for me a distinct turning point, a very distinct turning point, And it falls directly in line with Romans 2. So would you turn with me to Romans 2? This is our alternative. This is our alternative. This is our kingdom directive. Instead of self-love, love. Romans 2, 1 through 4. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge Another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and pay special attention here? This is kind of where we're moving to. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Repentance, repentance is the answer. Repentance is the answer. This is our kingdom directive. We need God to lead us in this work of repentance. We need him to lead the church into repentance. We need him to lead our hearts and our minds into repentance. In repentance, there is freedom. Because of his kindness, because of his love and his forgiveness, his mercy directed undeservingly at us, we are free to repent. We're free to do it. Repentance rather than self-love is the answer to self-hatred. Genuine repentance produces freedom. It enables us to, to, to embrace the reality of our darkest, most disgusting sin while rejoicing in the grace of God. 
and the new identity that he's given us as his children. We don't have to deny it. We don't have to ignore it. We can, like the apostle Paul, say, I am the worst of sinners, yet I am a child of God because of his grace and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness directed at me. Repentance takes personal responsibility before anything else. The repentant person removes the log from their eye. They are open to correction. They, they don't quickly throw others under the bus or ever throw others under the, under the bus. The repentant person, and this is so needed, guys. Listen to this. This is so needed right now in our world. The repentant person can look a genuinely evil man right in the eyes and feel sorrow and express loving kindness. They can do this because they know they were subject to the hardening of sin and the deceit of Satan until God rescued them by his unbelievable compassion, self-sacrifice, and power, just like that genuinely evil man. The repentant person is free. We are free because we know that the ultimate object of our sin is God. We, we stood as enemies of God. He owns this all. He owns us all. He owns it all. This is why King David, after the most heinous sin, could rightly say, against you and you only have I sent. God is the plaintiff. He is the judge. He is the jury. He is the arbiter of goodness and evil. In repentance, we receive a full and unshakable pardon from sin, bought for us by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and proven and secured by his resurrection from the dead. This is real. This is a real thing that God wants us to possess and own and count on and rejoice in. Not self-deception, not self-deception. In repentance, we receive from God incredible fatherly affirmation and his love for us. He is not harsh, he is good and he is gentle and he is kind and he is affirming with his children. In repentance, we get a real purpose for our lives, a real purpose and his call to discipleship to follow Jesus and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, loving them, doing good deeds and good works for the world in the name of Christ, even, even when there is rejection. In repentance, we get confidence. We get real confidence in our identity as children of God, co-heirs with Christ, those who've been given spiritual gifts that are real, that are to be used for the good of his body and the good of the world. This is a real deep-rooted confidence that comes with repentance towards Jesus Christ. It is not a fake trophy just for being on the team. There is something real and awesome and lasting that God truly wants for us. And I, I wanna ask you guys to pray along with me in our church, that God would lead us not to be people who just talk about repentance, which I think we've probably neglected. I think the church and our culture has neglected the concept of repentance, has neglected using the word repentance, and, but, but mostly, but mostly 
has neglected actual repentance. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter that much if we talk about it, if we understand it, if we're not living it out in our own lives. Certainly, as this this one-time thing, when we bow our knee to Jesus as Lord and we receive his Holy Spirit and we become his children and we are indeed born again, but as a lifestyle, as a lifestyle, where we can be led by the Spirit, where we can be humbled by God, where others feel free to speak into our lives. And we can receive that, guys, as an act of love and kindness. When a brother or sister in Christ speaks into my life, I can tell you there are a few ways I've been loved more than people who've been willing to speak into my life and correct me and guide me and show me ways that I was missing it in my, my heart or my words or my deeds. I've needed it so badly. But followers of moralistic therapeutic deism are missing, they're missing out. They are missing out on this gift. And those who are in the church, but have, have, have given way to the self-love doctrine are missing out. We've got to embrace repentance before God and also giving our brothers and sisters in Christ freedom to speak into our lives, to correct us, to love us. And we ought to do that so graciously taking the log out of our own eye before we do anything else. Okay, so I've got just really quick, six simple calls to action. Okay, what now? Self-love, if we wanna throw that in the trash as an ideology, and a mantra for us, for our church as children of God. And we want to embrace repentance and experience the freedom and joy and life that comes with this gift of repentance. I've got just six action steps. uh, And I don't expect you to just, I, I don't expect you to write these down and just do all these six things tomorrow. But what I do hope is that for you, there is something in this something in what I'm about to say that, that, that God would press on your heart and in your minds and could be a tangible call to action for you uh, tonight, this week, and moving forward in your, in your life. Okay, number one, we've got to embrace separateness in our worldview regarding repentance. Okay, embrace the separateness here. We are in the church called to be holy. We are not to be conformed to the world, but our minds are to be renewed in the, in the, the pattern of the scriptures day by day. And so as we understand repentance, it's got to be different than what the world says. It's got to be different. So when we're, when we're hearing things, when we're, I, I don't care what the source is, when we're taking in uh, what, when we're, we're taking in information, there's lots and lots of information through social media, through people posting, uh, through, through the, the official media channels, whatever it is, we have got to embrace that we as followers of Christ have a different, very different version of repentance than that of the world, where we truly can embrace our own folly and forgive those who've done heinous things. I mean, genuinely forgive those who've done the most heinous things. We've got to do that. Uh, Christ demands not only our own humility, but our forgiveness towards others who've done evil. And that is not in vogue right now. That is not in vogue. Okay, number two, embrace separateness in our lifestyle regarding repentance. Separateness in in the way we live out this doctrine. Am I regularly open to correction? 
Am I reading the scriptures and being transformed? Is my heart being challenged? Truly. Is there a fire there? A recognition of, of, of how God wants to move me and change me and lead me forward in growth when I read the scriptures? If there's not on a regular basis, we got to just take a step back and start over again. When we read the scriptures, if our hearts don't burn because we see how the Holy Spirit is just piercing us with the sword of God's word, we've got to take a step back. We're not, we're not reading the scriptures in the right way. If that is not a regular, regular occurrence in our own personal times with God, in our home groups, at church on Sunday nights, wherever it may be. Number three, embrace separateness in our relationships regarding repentance. Okay, and here's what I mean by this. Sorry, I keep blowing, not because I'm a psychopath. Uh, there are maybe other evidences of me being a psychopath, but because the bug keeps landing on my, on my uh, nose. And it just seems like the right thing to do to not just let it live its life there. Um, okay. Th- I think this is the most countercultural thing for us as a church that I think we've struggled to know what to do with. And there are all kinds of New Testament commands. I feel like for me, God's been like really pressing this on me over the last few months. That there, there are some things that have been neglected because it just, uh, it's, just not, I mean, it's just not quite comfortable. And I'll just tell you for myself, I'm just not quite comfortable with this. I want to reach the world. I want to associate with all kinds of people, with all kinds of people. And in a sense, we are to do that, obviously. We are to preach the gospel. We are to love our enemies. We are to be in the world, just not of it. But, but, guys, listen to the actual words of 1 Timothy 5. Do not associate with such people. People that are unrepentant. People that are slanderers, blasphemers, that are greedy, that, that lift up things that are evil and not things that are good. This is not the only New Testament command that speaks directly to who we surround ourselves with as our closest circle. This matters tremendously because we are not just pawns in God's kingdom where he wants to use us for some ultimate end. We, we are, because of his love for us, we are an end in and of itself. God loves us. He cares for us. He wants us to be in a church, in his church that is set apart and that loves people ferociously, but does not tolerate rejection of the values that Jesus possesses himself and lifts up. I think many of us, myself included, need to consider what does this actually look like for me to live this out to not associate with people that, it's not saying people that are violently opposed to the gospel. There's a whole laundry list of things that represents the religion of the day in 2 Timothy 1 through 5. And I think we as individual Christians and a church need to wrestle through. It's, it's not a simple, easy answer. We need to wrestle through what does this look like for us to obey this command and to not associate with such people. And I, I'm not saying it's an easy thing, guys, but I want to encourage you and myself as well to wrestle through this and seek the Lord on this and, and refuse to ignore 
inconvenient commands are commands that don't jive with uh, the way we've done things all along. Okay, number four, um, and we're wrapping up here in just a second. This is not just specific to the idea of embracing the kingdom value of repentance over self-love. This is a, a little bit more inclusive of the whole passage of, of how we can own this really and respond to it moving forward and just live underneath this uh, cultural religion of moralistic therapeutic deism. We've got to pray to God. We've got to pray to God for a stone face and a soft heart. Pray to God for a stone face and a soft heart. In Isaiah 50, uh, you see Jesus described the suffering that the Messiah was going to endure. And he set his face like flint in the face of opposition. He was willing to endure suffering and ridicule, being alone, being oppressed. He was absolutely resolute that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to go to the cross and suffer and die as a criminal. This is our hero. Jesus set the tone and the example for us. And we've got to pray to God for that resolute heart that no matter what the people around you say, no matter what the people in your place of work, your friend group, your school, wherever, or even your church, no matter what they say, you will be resolute in following Jesus Christ and his commands, no matter what happens in our culture. I think this is absolutely paramount right now as in, in so many ways that it, it feels like the foundations of our society are, um, and this is not just recent, this has been for a number of years, are shifting and shaky. I think we are right to feel that way. Just a moment here. Along with a stone face that is absolutely resolute, we've got to have a soft, kind, and gentle heart, just like our hero, Jesus Christ. And those two must, they, those two must go together. This is what Jesus modeled for us. Resolute obedience and a heart of love and compassion that was so soft and so gentle and so kind. And this is the way that he's treated us. This is the way he's treated. He has never been okay with our sins. He has never accepted them as all right. He has rejected them more, much more so than we have even our, in our most repentant moment. But his heart has been soft and kind and good to us. And so pray to God for a face like stone and a heart that is soft. Number five here, just steps for growth and application. Prepare for your discipleship to bear a real cost. Okay, this is not like, um, I really don't want to come off like the guy in Parks and Rec that holds the rally every year. What's that group called? Somebody, Brandon, are you listening? You're not really listening. Um, we'll talk about that later. No, I'm kidding. What, what's the guy that has the Zorg or Zorb or whatever? The reasonableness. The reasonableness. Yes, if you've seen Parks and Rec. Guys, I hope you don't take this as me being like the reasonableness from Parks and Rec who are constantly saying, okay, this is the date. It's uh, gonna be, you know, July 17th, 2020. Jesus is gonna come back and, you know, Zorb's gonna like destroy everyone in fire except for us right here in, in Awakened Church. Okay, this is not that. 
Um, however, we've got to, Jesus calls us to read the signs of the times. Okay, and there have been other generations that have seen and felt similar things to what we're seeing and facing right now. I do not know the date or the hour. It could be 10,000 years from today that Christ is gonna return, but it could be right around the corner. And I do think Jesus wants us to live with that expectation. In fact, I know that Jesus wants us to live with that expectation. There are unique signs of our times that very well could be ushering in Christ's return. I know that is, oh my goodness, I would have made fun of myself so hard in my younger years for hearing myself say that. This is the exact kind of thing that I, uh, that I made fun of and ridiculed. Jesus is coming back? Come on, that's outrageous. I also hated Christian music. So be careful, kids. What you dislike, you're probably gonna become it. Um, anyways, though, um, be ready for there to be a real cost. We are approaching a day where adherence to biblical doctrine could cost you your job. It certainly can cost you some friends. I'm not saying we're there right now institutionally. Culturally, we're already there. Culturally, we're already there. So many of the things that we hold dear, that we must remain steadfast in, are, are despised by the world around us. Overtly despised. They've been despised in many ways all along, but they are overtly despised. And there is something unique in that that I want us to recognize. So be prepared in your heart and in your minds for there to be a real cost to your discipleship. And I hope and pray that every single one of us here will count the cost and will remain faithful to Christ through the ends. Okay, here's the last thing. And it goes right along with this. Know the one in whom you have believed. Know the one in whom you have believed. Know him. Know him. Know his heart. Know his grace. Know his gentleness. Know his power. Know his strength. Seek his face, the face of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, when he was enduring unbelievable suffering and difficulty and walking towards his imminent death, that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, Paul's saying of his own suffering, because I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Know Jesus Christ. The trappings of religion, your friendships, our church, whatever it may be, the way that community and worship makes you feel, I hope it makes us feel really good most of the time and, and provides genuine happiness and purpose in our lives. Those things will not be enough. They never were, but we will feel it. They will not be enough. Know him and know that no matter what happens in our culture, we should expect ever increasing difficulty for the church in the time leading up to Christ's return. We should expect that to be the case if we trust Christ as words. But know that no matter what happens in culture, no matter what happens in our church, no matter what happens with your friends, no matter what happens with your kids, every single act of service, every single prayer, 
every single word of scripture that you have read and taken into your own heart, every single moment of surrender to Jesus Christ will be worth it when we see his face. It will be worth it. And we will see his face. He will make all things right. He will restore things to the way that they truly ought to be. And I pray that we will all rejoice in that day, but we've got to know now. Okay, you're gonna, you, we're gonna suffer in various ways, probably just this very week. We have got to know now. It will be worth it when we see his face and it is worth it now. Amen? Amen. Hey, would you pray with me? Lord, we love you. We are so grateful that you have called us your children. God, I, I thank you that you have given us the gift of repentance and the freedom that comes along with repentance. Lord, I pray that even now, just as we reflect on your word and on this message and on 2 Timothy uh, 3, 1 through 5, Lord, that you would lead us into the life-giving repentance, the life-giving repentance to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us know as we leave this place and even talk uh, amongst one another and encourage one another how we can live these things out, how, how we can live for Jesus Christ in the here and now, tomorrow, the day after that, the day after that. Lord, and help us to not lose heart, but to persevere because we are gonna see your face one day. Lord, and we just can together and pray along with me if this is your heart. We confess to you together. Lord, you are worth it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.